This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're finishing up the story of Morgan Le Fay, Arthur's sometimes evil, moderately misunderstood half-sister. We'll learn that it's absolutely a good idea to get on a boat and party with strangers who just want to give you strong drinks and to get you out of all that pesky armor that's protecting your life. And that a tower called the Tower of Ambush might not be a great place to stop to ask for directions. The creature this week is Fishman from Spain. He's a man who's also a fish. Also, he loves wine. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 68B, Her Majesty. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. Previously on the podcast, we met Morgan Le Fay, King Arthur's half-sister. She was a sorceress and desperately wanted the magic scabbard to Arthur's legendary sword, Excalibur. She's currently at large in our story. And Arthur, a knight named Sir Acalon, and Morgan's husband, Urien, were all out on a hunting trip. Their horses died from exhaustion, leading to them walking through the vast wilderness of 7th century Britain with no idea where to go until they saw a party boat. Emerging by the river, yes, it was a party cruise. More specifically, it was a boat full of beautiful young women who were very happy to see two young men and an older guy whose estranged wife was the most wanted fugitive in the kingdom. The women leaned out over the edge of their boat, beckoning the men aboard so they could take off their heavy armor. Because they needed to know how to get home, and because they didn't have any provisions or camping supplies, and for absolutely no other reason, the three men eagerly boarded the booze cruise, full of attractive young women who just wanted to help them out of their armor. Arthur was not on a boat. The jagged rocks jutting into his head told him as much. He didn't remember much after climbing aboard the boat, and nothing after the first sip of wine. Arthur sighed. What was the world coming to when you couldn't trust a boat full of suspiciously attractive strangers giving you free drinks? Another dead giveaway that Arthur was no longer on a boat was that he sat chained in a room alongside 20 other knights. And, like most people chained in a medieval dungeon, things were not going well for them. Arthur addressed the room. First, hi everybody. Second, what's going on? The knight closest to him woke up with a start and turned. He yelled out to the others that there was another one. The whole room groaned with the saddest, hey, anyone had ever heard. Arthur was still kind of waiting on the answer to what's going on, and his neighbor laughed. Domus got you, too. Arthur was confused. The man continued. Domus was the knight and lord of the Tower of Ambush, where, and I bet you didn't see this coming, he ambushed knights and took them captive. Free piece of advice, whatever trip you're on, if you see a place known as the Tower of Ambush, maybe take the long way around instead. Anyway, these 20 knights had not taken the long way around, and now, some have been locked up in this dungeon for as long as seven years. Arthur was flabbergasted. That something like this was happening in his land was preposterous. Who was this Sir Damas, and why was he doing this? All the knights knew the story because all the knights had been offered the same deal. Sir Damas had a younger brother, 
when he had cheated out of his inheritance. The younger brother shrugged it off and built a much more successful life than his older brother, even without the inheritance. Sir Damas looked on his younger brother's estates and demanded a portion, because they were family or something. I'm not sure of the reasoning. The younger brother said, uh, no. And so Damas demanded that they meet on the battlefield, in war. The younger brother liked that idea even better. Yeah, okay, I mean, I have a lot more money, weapons, and loyal people than you, so let's do this, like, right now. Damas looked on his younger brother's better versions of everything and tried to take it back. Did I say battle? I meant single combat. The brother shrugged again. All right, let's go. Damas said, oh, not me. I mean, I'll call a champion for me. The brother sighed. All right, where's your knight? Sir Damas looked around to his men who all suddenly had places they needed to be. The younger brother accommodated yet again. If you want my stuff, send a knight my way. If you want to live in peace as brothers, I'd much rather prefer that. Since jerks are jerks, Damas preferred the former. Since none of his own knights would fight, he just hung out in the Tower of Ambush where, get this, he ambushed passing knights, trying to press them into service. Except none of them would fight for him either, even though it meant their freedom and the freedom of all the others. Arthur sat back. I mean, I know it's not honorable to fight for a knight with such terrible intentions and all, but I don't know. Have you guys given any thought to maybe fighting for this knight with such terrible intentions? I mean, it would mean all of our freedom. Yeah, but he's just such a jerk, one replied. After a year or so, we all generally cave and think about fighting, but we're all kind of too weak. Uh, I could fight, Arthur offered. Oh my gosh, could you? We didn't want to ask, but you could really help us out of a jam here. I mean... We're principled and all, but spending a few years shy of a decade in a rat-infested medieval dungeon really helps you relax some of your principles, the knight said. Did I hear you'd fight? A woman asked, descending from the staircase at the edge of the room. Uh, yep, said Arthur. Wait, do I know you? I feel like I've seen you around Camelot. Yeah, you have. We have spies everywhere. Anyway, you'll fight? Wait, Damas has spies everywhere? No, but you'll fight? Yeah, Arthur said, but we're really going to need to circle back to that whole spice thing. He presented his iron chains to the woman. We won't. Right this way, please, the young woman said, taking the first prisoner out of the dungeon in over seven years. Sir Acolon of Gaul's head pounded as he woke up. The sun was shining. He was drooling on the grass, and he, too, was not on a boat. He reached around to pull himself off the ground and discovered a well. On his knees, he splashed water on his face from the bucket. He turned and looked at the clearing and found that he was face to face with a terrifying dwarf. He screamed, stumbling backwards on the ground. The dwarf just stood there, waiting for Akalon to stop being ridiculous. Akalon picked himself up from the ground again and looked at the man before him. Did Morgan send you? Akalon asked the dwarf. She did, the dwarf answered. And do you have it? I do, said the dwarf, as he gave Akalon Excalibur. The last time Akalon had been with Morgan back home in Gaul, she promised him the legendary sword Excalibur and its magic scabbard. He asked her what she wanted in return, and she had just said she wanted his safety, and for him to do one very simple task. 
he had to slay a knight. She didn't say which knight, just that it would be very obvious after he obtained Excalibur from her messenger. And here's your ride, the dwarf added. Akalam peered down the road through the forest to see a knight and his entire retinue approaching him fast. Sir Damas's younger brother had been injured a mere day ago, almost to the hour that a messenger had come from Sir Damas, saying that after almost a decade, the older brother was ready to send a knight to fight in single combat so he could take all his younger brother's stuff. The younger brother first thought, wait, we're, we're still doing that? Followed by, uh-oh, as he remembered his recent injury. Later that evening, the younger brother received word from a mysterious woman that the knight he needed would be at a nearby well at noon the following day. That knight, of course, was Sir Acalon, who, because of Morgan Le Fay's cryptic commands, agreed to fight Sir Damas's knight with virtually no context. For some clarification, Acalon is totally in on the plan, at least partially. Morgan was cheating on King Urien with Acalon. I'm not sure if it was because she actually cared for him or if she just needed to secure his loyalty in this Rube Goldberg contraption of a takedown of Arthur, but whatever her motivations, Sir Acalon of Gaul was set to fight Sir Damas's champion tomorrow, who just so happened to be King Arthur. Arthur swung his sword through the air the next day, in the field where he was to meet the opposing knight. Sir Damas's people had his horse, armor, and most importantly, Excalibur and the scabbard. With that, Arthur was confident that he could win, not realizing that it had been switched with yet another fake. Just before the fight began, Arthur was surprised to find that he had a cheering section comprised of the 20 other dungeon mate knights. Both Arthur and Acalon wore full helmets, so that kind of cliche thing where two people who know each other are destined to fight each other to the death because they don't recognize each other. Yeah, that's happening. The fight started, and Arthur walked onto the field with no small degree of swagger. Having a magic scabbard that will basically guarantee you'll never bleed out in a stabbing-centric competition will do that. Arthur's bravado lasted approximately three minutes until Acalon landed one good hit, and Arthur noticed that, one, ow, and two, he was losing blood, a lot of it, really quickly. This probably was not a great development, seeing as he had only signed up for a fight to the death under the condition that he couldn't die. He was suddenly not very excited about this whole fight to the death thing. Still, yeah, he could die. That was true of, conservatively, every human being who has ever lived and who will live. But he was still King Arthur, fighting some no-name knight. He could do this. Except that, no matter how many expertly placed hits Arthur threw on the knight, his opponent would not bleed. That's when Arthur saw his scabbard. Morgan. It was the doing of his sister, Morgan Le Fay. This was her endgame. He actually could die here. But he still had a sword in his hand, and if there was just some way he could cut the scabbard, oh, come on! Arthur yelled as the fake Excalibur in his hand shattered from a blow from the real Excalibur. Acalon didn't wait. He had this other knight right where he needed him. He hit Arthur hard in the side of the head, Arthur's armor ringing like a bell, and the king dropped to the ground. Arthur, on the ground and losing way too much blood, tried to crawl away from Acalon, 
to recover the shard of his sword that had flown from his hand. Acalon slammed down on Arthur's ankle and raised the sword above his head, ready for a killing blow. Unbeknownst to really anyone watching the fight, there was another spectator, a mysterious lady of the lake watching from the forest. These were magical women and possibly fairy creatures that, yes, live in lakes. One had given Arthur Excalibur, one had been beheaded in front of Arthur, one will run away with Merlin, and then there's this one. I'm still trying to hammer out the motivations of the various ladies of the lake, but they appear to be supernatural women who aid King Arthur in his time of need. For instance, when he's about to be stabbed to death by his own sword in a field. So, with Excalibur poised above his head, Acalon suddenly began to feel the handle grow warm. Then, almost immediately, it was red hot. He shrieked and instinctively tossed it to the ground. Arthur, on his back, with his face bravely contorted in terror, seized the opportunity. He lunged for the sword, which, for him, was quite cool, and in one motion sliced the scabbard from Acalon's side. The sword out of his hand, and the scabbard on the ground, Acalon almost reached for it, until Arthur found a gap in his armor, and ran Excalibur straight through it. The spectators had been sitting there in stunned silence, but soon, all twenty knights erupted in cheers. That guy that they didn't know had killed the other guy that they didn't know. They could leave. Sir Damas was deep in thought about what Wally was going to bump out to make room for his jacuzzi and his brother's much nicer house as King Arthur tore the helmet off the opposing knight. In shock, he threw Excalibur to the ground, fell to his knees, and hugged Acalon, apologizing to his dear friend. He removed his own helmet. Through blood-filled coughs, Acalon confirmed that it was Morgan. She had set this whole thing up. Acalon didn't know that he was fighting Arthur. He never would have done it. Arthur assured him that it wasn't his fault. Morgan had tricked them all. And now, she would pay for this. Arthur approached Damas. Hey, so, I'm your high king. And this whole thing with your brother? Don't do that. Seriously, what's wrong with you? Damas, who was kind of like the kid in class that makes fun of the teacher behind their back, but then folds immediately after being called out, stared at his feet and kicked the dirt. He agreed that, yeah, I'm sorry. Arthur made him promise not to ambush knights and imprison them for years, and then, presumably, put Damas on timeout and made him hug his brother before leaving for Camelot to settle all the family business. Before setting out alone, Arthur turned to the woman who had given him the fake sword and gestured to Acalon, who lay dying on the battlefield. Arthur told them that when Acalon died, they should take the body to Morgan. Acalon was her lover, after all, and they should tell Morgan that Arthur was coming for her next. Signaling his horse, he rode as fast as he could for home. If he knew his sister, Guinevere was in even more danger than he was. Oh my gosh, this guy. Morgan Le Fay complained to her servant. Morgan's woman had enchanted her husband, King Urien, to sleep on the boat. But that should have worn off 
hours ago. Now, he was just sleeping. It was so lazy. She hated him so much. She had hoped for a good bit of monologuing, maybe some supervillain-style gloating, before she murdered him, Guinevere, and then took the throne for herself. Arthur was surely dead by now. Her half-brother would have gotten himself killed in the fight with Akalon. It was only a matter of time until word traveled from the east that the king was dead. Long live the queen. Arthur, Guinevere, and Merlin had all kept it quiet that Morgan had tried to steal the sword and murder the king. So as Arthur's sister, Morgan could seize power before anyone thought twice. Also, she was a sorceress who apparently had a shadow army of dangerous women. So there's that. But now, her husband wouldn't just wake up so she could kill him already. She waited for another few minutes, shook him, and finally gave up. She would just have to do away with him in his sleep. It was disappointing, but she would be queen by nightfall. Morgan turned to a servant, asking her to go get a knife. Please, and quickly. The servant paused. She wasn't one of Morgan's. The servant didn't know to fear Morgan, though she had been getting some pretty iffy vibes from the creepy woman staring hatefully at her sleeping husband for like an hour, and who then asked for a knife. The servant nodded and left, but she did not go looking for a knife. She liked this family. Well, she liked Urian and his son. She didn't know the wife. She feared for Urian and went to find the one person she knew could help her. Recently knighted, he lived in a completely different section of the castle. That feeling of danger grew with every second it took getting there, like a man's life depended on her actions at this very moment. The servant broke into a sprint, and when she arrived at the young knight's room, she, quite out of breath, simply gasped, help, and began running back to Urian's room. Helping desperate women asking frantically for aid being, like, bullet point number one on the Arthurian knight orientation PowerPoint, the knight didn't ask questions, but promptly took off in a full run after the young servant. Back in Urian's bedroom, Morgan began feeling uneasy herself. Maybe it was her ability to know limited bits of the future, or maybe it was because there was no way getting one knife could take this long, but she knew she had to act now to keep her plan moving. Morgan hurried a few rooms down, found a knife herself, and slipped back to Urian, who, yes, was still sleeping. She uncovered her husband, considering the best spot to stab him. She looked at him. Since she had been a girl, she kind of always knew their marriage would end like this. Morgan raised the knife, and then she heard him. Her son, Yvain, stood in the doorway, mouth agape in disbelief that his mom was back, and she was about to murder his father. For all Morgan's scheming and plans within plans within plans, she was still a mother. Even if she hated his father, she still loved her son, who was standing there trying to understand what was going on. I'm not sold on Morgan being as evil as she's portrayed by several writers, but even she isn't so bad as to murder her son's sleeping father in cold blood right in front of the young knight. She dropped the knife and collapsed. Yvain rushed to his mother and scooped her up off the floor. She quote-unquote, regained consciousness and squinted to her son. Yvain, what am I doing here? She said. Yvain explained that he had found her about to stab his sleeping father and he very much had the same question. Morgan buried her face in her hands, cursing herself. 
She said she was too weak. She had tried to fight, but she just couldn't. She looked in terror, up to Yurian. She hadn't hurt him, had she? She tried to rise to her feet, but Yvain told her to stay where she was. She was obviously in shock from what had happened. And also, what had happened? Morgan said that she had been taken over by an evil spirit, a demon. It had possessed her a long time ago, and given her nothing but hatred for her husband. But it seemed like one look at her son, Yvain, the chivalrous knight, was all it took for the demon to flee in terror. She was free, and it was all thanks to him. Yvain began to smile in relief. Wow, okay, cool, you're welcome, I'm glad I could help. With that, another woman burst in through the door, pushing aside another servant and interrupting Morgan's reunion with Yvain. She did not have a, don't worry, everything is cool, the king is dead, look on her face. So Morgan, despite apparently just recovering from a months-long demon possession, brushed off her son's concerns and leapt from the floor to meet the messenger. Morgan turned, I'll be back in a minute, she said to Yvain. But she wouldn't be. When we get back from the break, we'll see why Arthur hasn't made it to Camelot yet, but that will be right after this. Alright, now back to the show. Morgan hadn't seen any of this in her visions. She stood over Acalon and kissed the man's forehead, another person that she had loved, now gone. Her servants had brought him into Camelot, not knowing what they would find. Arthur had left a whole day ahead of them, and they had been carrying a body. Arthur should have made it back to Camelot by now. Morgan was dismayed. Her plan mere moments away from completion, it was very likely that Arthur had just crawled off the road and died from the wounds sustained in the fight. But if he returned, it would not be good for her. Every knight, noble, and peasant in Camelot would turn on her. Even her power had limits. Morgan had to go find him and finish what she had started. Arthur would have died of his injuries had he not retrieved the real scabbard. That stopped the bleeding, but he had already lost too much blood to continue on. He lost consciousness on his horse, less than a mile after leaving Sir Domus's, and it was either luck or providence that led the horse to wander into a courtyard of an abbey with the unconscious king on its back. Arthur was taken inside and cared for with the best that 7th century medicine had to offer. We don't know how far-reaching Morgan's network of spies was, but I like to think of it as kind of like a Project Mayhem-like thing where the women just hid in plain sight. Regardless, one of the nuns at the Abbey recognized Arthur and knew that Queen Morgan, as she was calling herself, would like to know. Arthur shifted in his bed. The sutures on his stomach itched horribly. The ones on his arm did, too. That was a first. Arthur had been wounded before. A lot so he knew what it felt like to heal. Still, he thought that with the scabbard it would be different. He laid his hand down to his side and felt Excalibur's hilt. He had kept it at his side the whole time. Resting his hand on his stomach, he felt something surprising. Blood. Well, that was normal. Wounds, even sutured ones, bled occasionally. The only reason they hadn't so far was because he had the scabbard. Arthur's eyes shot open. Wait a second. He reached down and felt the bare blade. He lurched upright into the sitting position to see the door open in front of him. 
They had stolen it. Again. He should really put a bell on that thing or something. With intense pain, Arthur rose from bed and stood for the first time since he had left Sir Damas. They couldn't have made it far. He had just started bleeding again. With each ridiculously painful step, he hobbled, then walked, and then ran for the hallway. Ahead, a woman turned the corner. Arthur would know her anywhere. It was Morgan. And she was also in a hurry. He felt like he was being stabbed in the gut all over again. But he rushed after her. They weren't going to get away with this. It didn't just coordinate well with the sword and serve as an accessory that you could wear to formal and casual functions alike. But it was a way for Arthur to avoid his own fate. The one who would destroy him, who was still a child, and who had survived Arthur and Merlin's ill-fated baby boat trip, was out there. The scabbard was Arthur's way of proving that he wasn't locked on a path of destruction, that he and his people could be saved. But now, that scabbard was in Morgan's hands, and it was galloping out of the abbey stables. Arthur was in hot pursuit. He found his horse and grabbed his armor and pack on the way. Even though the jostling on the horse was far, far worse than running, Arthur was determined to catch Morgan. She disappeared into the moonlight of the forest. And for the longest time, Arthur had no idea where he was going. He somehow ended up on the top of a hill around sunrise, and he could see the fire of a large camp off in the distance. He took off toward it. When Morgan rode into camp with the scabbard, she knew that it was over. With her knowledge of the future, she knew that Arthur had seen her camp, and she wouldn't leave her people to die by Excalibur. Worse, Arthur was protected from her magic. She had tried to kill him outright last night in his bed, but it wouldn't work. She knew instinctively that it was the Lady of the Lakes doing. She didn't know how, but the mysterious woman was even more powerful than Morgan, and Arthur was under her protection. For now, they would have to run, but first, there was one more thing Morgan had to do. Morgan looked at the scabbard and sighed. All she had done was for the safety the thing had provided but she was apparently fated not to keep it. Well, if she couldn't have it, no one could. She waded out into a nearby lake, right to the drop-off, where the depths were inscrutably blue, and tossed the scabbard into the water. She watched the heavy thing disappear from view, and from all human knowledge. She knew that in doing so, she had killed Arthur. Eventually, like years from now. And she felt happy. Morgan made it back to camp, just as Arthur was less than a few minutes away. She told everyone to take a deep breath. Arthur couldn't really believe what he was seeing. His sister was dead. Maybe. He didn't really know if people died when they turned to stone, but Morgan and all of her people and servants had turned to stone. Preserved there in the valley next to the lake was Morgan, and the scene of all of her people frantically packing their items were normal, but they were all stone. Arthur found his sister and looked at her face. Even in death, in stone, she was smiling a smug, knowing smile. She had betrayed Arthur, and there was nothing he could do to her now. Worse, the scabbard was gone. Arthur searched all day, until late afternoon, and everything. But the scabbard wasn't anywhere. The daylight fading and his wounds bleeding after a long day, Arthur gave up. 
he gave one final look at his sister, cursing her name, and rode off back for the abbey. When he was out of sight, Morgan removed the illusion that she had cast on herself to make it appear like she was stone. She waited another hour or so until Arthur was definitely out of earshot before she unfroze the rest of her people. Most had been with Morgan for years, but they had never seen the full extent of her powers until today. They were awed and terrified by the woman who had turned them to stone for a day like it was nothing, and many wished that they could travel back to Camelot with Arthur. Morgan and her people continued traveling east. They crossed the channel without issue and continued on in Brittany in modern-day France. Then, one morning, out in the forest, they heard a man begging and a cacophony of squeaks. There, before a large pit, were two knights. One in armor was holding the other in his underwear over said pit. The knight in his underwear was bound, and Morgan had found the pair just as the knight that was wearing armor was about to let the other fall. Morgan entered the clearing. Hey guys, what's going on? The knight in the armor told her not to worry about it. The underwear knight was a false knight. The armored knight had got the underwear knight with his wife and was now going to drop him into a pit of rats to be devoured by said rats. The armored knight had just tossed his wife in and now the underwear knight was next. Morgan peered into the pit and then really wished she hadn't. Ugh. Morgan looked at the underwear knight and asked, and is this what happened? Of course, the underwear knight said that it was not. He said that the armor knight was his enemy, who had caught him unaware. He was the false knight. Morgan rolled her eyes. She didn't have time for this. She said that she didn't care who was sleeping with who or who caught who underwear. You, Morgan said, talking to the underwear knight. You look really familiar. Are you Sir Acalon's brother? The underwear knight was confused. Then recognition washed over his face. Wait, Morgan? Oh my gosh, how's it going? Ah, oh, hey... Did you hear about Aklon? Morgan sighed deeply. Yes, yes I did, she said. Okay, I don't have a ton of time, so here's what we're going to do. I'm choosing to believe the Underwear Knight because I loved his brother, even though his story is way less believable. Underwear Knight, you can get up. As she spoke, the ropes instantly fell from Underwear Knight, and all of Armored Knight's muscles went slack, and he collapsed. You guys look about the same size, Morgan said to the Underwear Knight. Go ahead and grab his armor. Don't worry, he's not going anywhere. The increasingly inaccurately named Underwear Knight thanked Morgan, who said that he should thank Akalon. She was only doing this out of her love for the man's brother, but she did have one request. She asked the Underwear Knight to go to Arthur and tell him that Morgan lived. She had fooled him with the stones, and she was still out there, burning with hatred for him. All right, and as a last point of business, what do you want to do with this guy? The Underwear Knight looked at the other knight, still unable to move on the ground, and said, Well, doesn't the Bible say, do unto others as they were just about to do unto you? It didn't, but neither of them cared. Morgan nodded, and as the old saying goes, where there's a pit full of hungry rats, there's a man in his underwear about to be thrown into it. The now armored Underwear Knight rolled the limp body of the other knight over to the edge and kicked him down into the pit. Still under Morgan's spell, he couldn't scream, so the pair heard every bit of what the rats did to him. Morgan ended up in the land of Garlow, which was ruled by the husband of her sister Elaine. 
Morgan was given a castle, and it was quickly thought to be a vile and evil place. That was mainly because there, in the center of the courtyard, Morgan kept a coffin. In it was an engraving. On that engraving was the date and way both Arthur and Gawain would die. It had been made by Merlin and entrusted to Morgan when she was still on good terms with Arthur. Morgan stayed there in her castle, on the fringes of Arthur's kingdom, waiting for the time that she could return to end Arthur's days at last. Partially recovered, Arthur returned to Camelot a few days later. It had been a long two weeks since he started on his hunting trip, and he had to check on Urien. After Arthur's ordeal and Acalon's death, he shuddered to think what Morgan had put him through, and Arthur found Urien sitting up happily in bed. He said it was so weird. One minute he was on a party boat with beautiful women, and the next thing he knew, he was waking up a week later in Camelot. I'm kind of mad about that, he said. I was excited for that boat ride. Arthur, who was still bleeding from his stomach, said, yeah, that's gotta be really tough for you, and then asked if Urien had seen Morgan. No, he said, but Yvain had. Even though Yvain was the king's nephew, he hadn't spent a ton of time talking to Arthur, but he knew enough to know that it was not going well. Arthur was in a bad mood for some reason, and wasn't happy that Yvain, one of his knights, had let Morgan go. Then, Arthur remembered the faces that he had seen frozen in stone with Morgan. They were women, and knights, and servants from Camelot. They were people Arthur had known for years, people Arthur had trusted with his life. If they chose Morgan over him, what would Morgan's own son do? Arthur looked at Yvain. He didn't see how he could ever trust the knight again. He told Yvain that he should gather whatever he needed tonight, because tomorrow morning, he would be expected to leave Camelot and never come back. He'd go to his father's kingdom. He'd go play the knight errant. He could go dive in a pit of hungry rats for all Arthur cared. Arthur just didn't want to see Yvain in Camelot ever again. Yvain hung his head. There was no arguing with the king. He left Arthur's presence, didn't wait for morning, and rode out in the moonlight. Arthur called Merlin and Guinevere to his room, where he told them the whole story of what had happened with Morgan, including the knight who had brought word from Brittany that Morgan had saved his life only a few days ago, well after the time Arthur saw her turn to stone. She was still alive, still out there, and she wasn't finished. She would come for them again, but they'd be ready. Arthur looked at his young wife and his best wizard friend and smiled. He thanked them for always being loyal and there for him. He laughed. At least he was getting all this crushing abandonment and personal betrayal out of the way early in his reign, huh? A few days out, Yvain awoke early to the sound of armor and hooves. He scrambled to his own weapon, exploding out of his tent in his bedclothes with his sword drawn. Oh, it's you, he said. Gawain dismounted his horse, saying something about Yvain being difficult to find. Gawain heard that he had been exiled from Camelot. That won't last long. It's actually a blessing in disguise, Gawain said. Yvain had been cooped up in Camelot for too long. It was time for him to explore Britain and really earn his knighthood. And it would start today. Gawain would take him under his wing and show him how to be a great knight, so that, hypothetically, if the situation arose where they were secretly fighting each other and Yvain's lion friend was securely locked up in a closet, Yvain could hold his own 
long enough to not die, you know, hypothetically. So, Gawain continued, what do you say? Do you want to travel and train with me, Gawain, be best friends, and maybe learn a few life lessons along the way? Yvain squealed and rushed to his horse. Yes, he was so excited. Oh, wait, yeah, he should probably put on pants first. That's it for this week. Morgan will definitely pop up again from time to time, and she'll play a big role at the end, when everything that Arthur fears comes to pass. And we'll catch back up with our buddies Yvain and Gawain, because there's a lot more that happens before Yvain meets his lion best friend. Next week on the show, we're getting into the story of Midas, from Greek mythology. And if you've ever heard that ad jingle, trust the Midas touch, don't do that. You should never trust the Midas touch. Midas makes poor decisions of mythical proportions. I want to say thanks to Rhino123Po, Kate Linia, Greggles21, Papillon0604, Mrs. Hill2011, Rhas5, TD1092, Squeakameg, Mr. Meeps, Farahan, Benacoa, Assurance Torx23, Dawn of the Dead, Stephen Lamb, Big B7487, Calls1219, Sarah Bam, and Love Mama Monster. For the reviews on Apple Podcasts. Thank you all so, so much. I really appreciate it. If you'd like to leave a review, Apple Podcasts is the best place. You can find the show there at apple.mythpodcast.com. There's also a membership thing on the site. For way less than a $2,300 life-size Bigfoot statue, you can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show. Really, though, for something to be life-size, doesn't there have to be a real-life Bigfoot? Either this is a fake, which can't possibly be true, or there's an artist out there who has not only seen Bigfoot, but had him hold still long enough to get a full body mold. You can get 51 years worth of the member podcast for one Bigfoot statue. Though, I'd still have to be doing this in my 80s for you to break even. I don't know. Maybe you should just go with the statue. If you're still on the fence, check out support.mythpodcast.com for more info. The creature this week is the Fishman of Liergenis from the Cantabrian Mountains, northern Spain. In the 1600s, fishermen outside the city of Cadiz in southern Spain pulled up their nets to find a person in them. Unlike the other times this happened, this person was alive and snacking on the fish as he struggled in the net. The man in the net shrieked, and the people aboard responded in kind, dropping the net in surprise. They watched in awe as the man swam away faster than they had ever seen. The people fishing just off the coasts had some problems after that. This guy kept messing with their nets and eating their fish. It was super annoying and expensive, and they didn't appreciate all the jump scares every time they brought in their nets, not knowing if there'd be a new dude literally hanging out having a snack. One guy sitting in his boat was munching on some bread. When he came to a moldy spot, he tore it off and tossed it in the water. And before he took his next bite, he heard a gulp one way too loud for a fish or a bird. He turned and saw the fish man, as he was very creatively being called, under the water, looking back at him and waiting for another piece of bread. The fisherman tossed a piece slightly close to the boat and the thing came and ate it. He told his co-workers to grab a net. It really was that easy. They dropped a literal trail of breadcrumbs and he followed it until they threw the net over him, tied up and trapped aboard the ship the man snacked on bread while the fisherman decided what to do with him. 
He had a line of scales from his neck to his belly button and another down his spine, as well as gills. They were disgusted by this monster. He had to be a demon. Yeah, he, he's not possessed by a demon, guys, the priest said a few days later. I mean, we tried to exercise him, but it didn't take. I don't know what it is, but it's not a demon. The fishman only said one word, Liergonis, despite being questioned in several languages. Also, now that he was at the convent, he kind of didn't feel like heading back to the sea for a while, and just hung out drinking wine, smoking tobacco, and eating bread, which, yeah, was better than raw fish. Eventually, word spread, until someone knew the meaning of the only thing the fishman had said, Liergonis. It was a village in the northern part of Spain. Seeing as it was their only lead, a friar took the fishman the length of Spain and dropped him off less than a mile from the village, wanting to see if the fishman knew the way. He did, and he ran not just to the village, but to one house in particular, the house of his parents. The fishman's real name was Francisco de la Vega Casar, and he had grown up in this village with his parents. He was a great swimmer, but even great swimmers can have accidents. He was sucked out to sea by a current in 1674, and people assumed that he had drowned, until, five years later, he turned up in Cadiz, messing with nets and snacking on bread. The family thanked the friar for bringing their son back to him, and they joyfully accepted him, gills and all, back into their home. The next few years were weird. Their son would not wear clothes, and he also wouldn't say anything other than tobacco, bread, and wine. He would go for a week or so between eating, but then he would eat a lot. He was easygoing, though, and whenever anyone asked him to do something, he would just shrug and get to work. Not really protesting, but not really being super excited about it either. Eventually, he grew tired of people making outrageous demands on him, like put on clothes and learn more than just three words. One day, he was seen wandering out to sea, and the people of his small village never saw him again. The story is reportedly true, but with the very specific places and dates. And, I mean, I know this is my bias coming through, but the story of a fishman hanging out and drinking wine is probably not real. I will say, though, that I am fishman agnostic. I acknowledge the possibility of the existence of a fishman, but I personally do not believe in him. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to other music in the show notes, and if you want to say hi on Twitter and Facebook, I'm at MythPodcast. This episode was written by me, Jason Weiser, and produced by Carissa Weiser. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>